Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor, and today we're going to be talking about The Ordinariate, which uh, goes has multiple titles these days because there's three Ordinariates, my understanding is, at the moment. One in uh, England, uh, Scotland, and Wales, one in the United States and Canada, and then one in Australia. So, on to discuss this topic is Christian B. Wagner, who runs an apostolate called Scholastic Answers. You basically deal with all different types of uh, Thomism and sort of the defense of Thomism and the ad- and advocating Thomism's use in uh, theology today. Is that does that sum up right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's about right. You're uh, you're actually cutting out just a little bit, so. Oh, Let me I see if it's your internet or my internet. I think it's my internet. Things look fine now. But yeah, um, basically just straight line, uh, traditional Thomism. Uh, that's kind of what I would uh, like to see. I, I think that would be able to help out uh, people the most, uh, even even on the lay level, uh, because this is actually sort of a little known fact is actually St. Thomas uh, was regarded uh, during his lifetime as um especially being a teacher who could reach both the learned and then also have a certain like simple profundity to a speech to be able to um, teach laymen uh, was, was something that St. Thomas is, uh, was known for and St. Thomas's works were known for. And there's actually some in the commentorial tradition, uh, such as John of St. Thomas. Uh, he, he did things like that. Uh, Gary Goulagrange is a famous one who did things like that. But yeah, I, I, I think that um, Thomistic theology and philosophy um, can be actually very useful for, um, for laymen as well as uh, for theologians. Although, unfortunately, the theologians have kind of, uh, kind of abandoned it yeah. Well, thank uh, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on to discuss the ordinariate, uh, and I very much appreciate your work and uh, your uh, your uh, when you had your what is it your Discord up and running massively. You had a massive Discord. I know it's uh, sort of decreased uh, in in size because you uh, uh, it's now behind paywall, right? That's what it is. Yeah, I I needed to. What I needed to do is I kind of needed to keep it to like. Um, I wanted to keep it to like about a hundred people. So I invited some people who, um, I'd known for a really long time, and then I was just like, okay, patron only. Um, so I can kind of deal with whatever's going on because I mean, you're like, when when you kind of have something like a Discord connected to your name, and then I didn't have much time to mod anything, mm. and it was like, oh, you have people in there like talking about uh things that would get your youtube channel uh taken down if i mentioned <laughs> and it's like it's not a it's not a good look so yeah. i kind of had to be like look guys i can't mod it you guys are just acting insane and i i just need to uh keep it more private uh sort of thing yeah understandable well so so are you a convert to the catholic faith or have are you a um, cradle catholic i'm a convert uh i so when it comes to my background I had converted to um, just a sort of uh, normal flavor of, of Protestantism uh, that if you wanted a class, it'd be like a charismatic uh, sort of a form of Protestantism. Uh, so that was junior year of high, junior year of high school for me. Um, and then as I got into the uh, faith, I, I had before that uh, for a very long time been very interested in studying. 
so I wanted to uh, study um, theology and I, I wanted to figure out what was going on. Um, and my parents, they had my, my grandfather. He's he's a Baptist um, pastor, but they had sort of been in the like broad MacArthurite, uh, John MacArthur following stream sort of thing. And they also had uh, some sort of uh, knowledge of like R.C. Sproul. And, and that sort of thing. So when I went and I asked them, I'm like, hey, I'm, I kind of want to get serious about religion. Like, what what should I read about? And they were like, oh, your your grandfather, he he likes this guy and this guy. You can um, you can start reading their stuff. So I started to um, my, my parents bought me one of the MacArthur study Bibles. I think I still. Still have it. I'm, I guess it's not on my shelf, um, but I think it might be in storage. Um, they got me a MacArthur study Bible, which has like little uh, study notes on them, explaining verses and such. And that that thing, I just absolutely brutalized it with my underlining. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I went through a lot of it. I, I probably read most of it because, um, I, I mean, I had certain like religious interests uh, when I was younger. So I was very familiar just because of the culture of um, my parents who were, I guess you could describe them as like fundamentalist baptist but not in like the really really sort of strict way but kind kind of like a little fundamentalist which i guess is um, i guess is like a really that's how my grandfather at least would describe himself uh, when i asked him like hey how would you like describe yourself because that's sort of weird for protestants is they don't like describing themselves um but all that to say uh i was very very familiar uh with the scope and content of sacred scripture from a very young age um, and then so that it wasn't too hard for me to to go to sacred scripture and start asking myself, OK, what does this mean? What does that mean? Like, how do they connect uh, sort of thing? So uh, that mixed with some stuff uh, from R.C. Sproul, I started listening to his videos and, um, and, and sermons and, and stuff like that. I started following uh, podcast and, and that, that's sort of how I got uh, interested. I was I was buying books and um, I actually figured out that they had started. Um, a college as well. And at this point, I I, I was kind of uh, directing myself towards uh, wanting to go into ministry. I was an intern at like my local church and I, I, I did a bunch of stuff because when, when I kind of hit stuff, I, I, I want to hit it and I want to get it and do it the best I can. So that's kind of how I went into uh, religion as well. So I decided to go to college um, at the college that he started, which got me interested in um, a group of theologians uh, known as the Reformed Scholastics. Uh, so when it comes to the Reformed Scholastics, this is like the generation after like your Calvin, Luther, Melanchthon, uh, Bucer, uh, Oculumpatius, whoever you want to say. That, that's like the generation after them that started actually writing um, in a uh, more Catholic manner, so a manner which drew from the uh, medievals and the church fathers. So that kind of started this massive rabbit hole to where I started uh, studying St. Thomas Aquinas because these uh, you talk to these people and they're like, well, St. Thomas, his doctrine of God is like the best. So you're going to want to uh, read the Summa. So I'm like, OK, uh, I'll, I'll read the Summa. So I, I picked up the Summa. I started reading that. That caused a lot of questions in my mind, which got me interested in uh, some of the Counter-Reformation uh, theologians, so like Suarez, Banyet, uh, not Banyas at that point, but Suarez, Bellarmine, um, St. Francis de Sales, and theologians like that. So I started uh, reading them, 
eventually got introduced into the manualist tradition, which is a whole nother can of worms. But all this to say is really, um, I, I kind of got this ball rolling. And then eventually, uh, at, at the point in which um, I was discerning very seriously uh, whether to convert, uh, I was uh, actually by that point an Anglican. Uh, because right when I went to college, I was like, yeah, I kind of want to, uh, now that I've started becoming interested in the broader Catholic uh, tradition, I started getting interested in um, things like liturgy, uh, which obviously, if you're going to go to your normal Presbyterian or Baptist church, you're not going to really find um, something that's more Catholic in, in liturgy. Uh, and I'm using Catholic in the like weird Protestant broad sense of the term. Yeah, the lowercase so, c. Yeah, lo lowercase c Catholic. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I started getting like introduced uh, to all those things. So I became an Anglican. I was an ordinand at the time. For so, for those who don't know, an ordinand is somebody who goes, uh, he's basically studying for orders. Uh, so studying for the the priesthood. And I was actually very close to my my diaconal ordination uh, by the time I had uh, I left. Yeah, but I was an ordinand in the diocese, and finally, um, I I uh, decided that I I just I just had to I just had to become become Roman Catholic, and I, I couldn't the the coping the, basically the coping must must stop uh, sort of thing is I at that point I had I had imbibed um, so many uh, different doctrines that were very clearly uh, Roman and. Uh, yeah, that that and and I sort of another another thing that you get, um, and I try to describe this to people, but a lot of people like um, really really do uh, not understand what I'm saying. But you have to you have to sort of recognize that at, at that stage, sort of in my in my formation in theology, I'd read like a lot of uh, uh, of some of the best sort of Protestant theology out there. Uh, when it came to the reform scholastic period and then you just like go and find out that something like the um the cursus theologicus of uh, of the samantachensis or like the sacred theologia summa of the of the bac that that they exist and there's just these like insanely massive very erudite works that just like kick butt in every single way possible um and then you see these things and you read them and you read like you read like one of their theses on a disputed point between Protestants and they're distinguishing what they mean so very clearly. They're showing it from the sources of theology, from, from scripture in a very strict syllogistic form, from the fathers, from the theologians, from theological reasoning. And you're reading this and you're just like, you know, it, it feels like the, the, the Protestant sides throwing out some like petty difficulties and objections that you can resolve with the distinctions they give. And then the Catholic side is just, uh, at least the Catholic scholastic side is just showing extremely clearly uh, that they're that they're right. So, yeah, at, at that sort of point, once I once I started uh, reading into reading into those figures, it just kind of like was very, very, very um, clear to me. But eventually uh, there was there was sort of a time where it was very clear to me, but I still didn't want to convert um, mm -hmm. for more or less psychological reasons because it's like, well, you know, uh, I kind of, kind of want to do this whole, uh, priesthood thing that I've been, uh, studying for, for the last few years and kind of be like this or that. And, and then finally, um, I just, 
uh, I guess Grace just kind of uh, broke through and, and decided that uh, decided that I needed to uh, convert. So yeah, that that's sort of my my background. But yes, I was uh, I was a convert and I was actually like an Anglican uh, yeah. ordinance who was like training to say mass and, and stuff like that. Uh, okay, so, that's yeah. kind of, that's pretty cool. Uh, and was this what was the Church of England or at least or sorry. Oh, would it be Episcopalian? Was it Episcopalian church? It was. It was the Anglican Church in North America. So back okay. in, um, there's really, and I'll keep this quick, but there's really like three main branches of American Anglicanism. So you have the Episcopal Church. Actually, I, I'd say there's four branches. So you have the Episcopal Church, which was the one brought over from the Church of England to America, that whole fun thing. And then you have in the uh, 19th century of something called the. Uh, Oxford movement or the Anglo-Catholic movement of figures like John Henry Newman. Uh, people usually recognize John Henry Newman's name. Uh, he he was one of the guys who actually uh, started the Oxford movement, and then he eventually obviously converted to Roman Catholicism. But because of this Oxford movement, you had these wings of the church. So before you had like basically people who were reformed, you had the evangelicals who were could be like a sort of weird uh, Arminian type uh, belief. And then you have, um, on the other hand, the latitudinarians, which were basically like your theological liberals that they had. So you had like a bunch of people in the church of England back then, like denying the, the Nicene definition of the Trinity. And they were allowed <laughs> to like continue to be, pre it was insane, honestly. Like I get why the Oxford movement did what they did. And I feel like all of like the, the grouchy reform types that are like, oh, the Oxford movement was so bad. Like you guys don't know how bad things really were back in the Church of England during that time. But all that's to say uh, from this, you had like a very, you had the ritualist movement, which was a very high sort of Anglo-Catholicism that was like celebrating Latin masses and stuff, which was just like 40 years prior, you, you couldn't even like light a candle on the altar without being called a Romanist. And like the Oxford movement guys were still wearing like the, weren't even wearing like art, sacrificial vestments and then you had guys who were like yes latin masses and anglican churches these guys were like thrown in jail for doing it it's, it's insane story but <laughs> um because of this you have a very strong um sort of fission within um anglicanism between these two wings of the uh sort of the evangelicals who would identify themselves very strongly with protestantism and then you have the uh anglo-catholics which basically turn into a party which was uh, very strongly identified themselves with Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. So in America, um, this sort of uh, moved to some of the clergy in America, uh, where you had uh, now Anglo-Catholics uh, within the Episcopal Church. So groups of clergy uh, in America got mad at that, and they decided to break off and start what's called the REC, so the Reformed Episcopal Church. And that was the first of the breaks within the American uh, Anglican Church. And then it's not for another hundred years. This was like 1870s. So the 1970s, you have the what are called the Philadelphia. Is it Philadelphia eight or Philadelphia 11? But you had a group of uh, women who were ordained um, in in uh, Philadelphia uh, by a retired Episcopalian uh, bishop. And at this point, everybody just like flips their lid and they're like, OK, let's like <laughs> basically just like obliterate this bishop and these women like in public and just like epically own them <laughs> um but but there was one erudite bishop in the house of bishops who convinced the other like this was the dumbest move ever they convinced the other bishops that the ordination was valid 
which um, like almost every single canonist uh, before that going all the way, like St. Thomas Aquinas writes about this. Interestingly, like canonists for like, a, um, like a very, very long time said that you can't ordain women. Uh, they, they're defective matter for ordination and it would be an invalid, not merely an illicit, but an invalid ordination. But this bishop convinced the other bishops uh, through more or less tricky means uh, that these were merely illicit ordinations. So they just suspended uh, the women from their ministry rather than excommunicating them and saying, like, you're not priests. So this led to a cascade of like liberal infiltration, like Taylor Marshall style infiltration, but in the Episcopal Church. Um, and uh, from this, they finally in 1977 allowed female ordination in the Episcopal Church. So this led everybody to just like flip their lids. And a group of Anglicans uh, decided to break off. And they're like, yeah, we can't be in union with those with uh, a bunch of like invalid women priests. Um, so they they break off. And after uh, breaking off, um, they start this uh, movement called the Continuing Movement to continue the Anglican faith in America. And in uh, true Anglican fashion, within like four years, this group had split off to 20 denominations. I'm not joking. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my. That's... Yeah, they, they broke they broke off into like, uh, they first broke off into four groups and this caused them to break off into like a bunch of different other groups. Um, so yeah, wow. there, there was this massive sort of like fragmentation uh, within this continuing movement. Uh, which still continues actually to this day. You can still find uh, continuing Anglican churches. Um, uh, they, they're together in what's called the G3. So they're trying to get back together into like union to like <laughs> one denomination still. And it's been like 50 years. But who has uh, authority? Isn't that what they're going to argue about? It's for, Well, what the crazy thing is, is uh, my, my former uh, Anglican priest used to call it purple fever is uh, because per in, in the Anglican church, bishops wear purple cassocks rather than black cassocks. Um, so everybody wanted to be a bishop is basically what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd have, you'd have like, it's, it's insane because you'd have these dioceses with like five congregations and each of these congregations maybe had like 50 laymen. So you'd have like a bishop over 250 laymen <laughs> and like five priests. It's like, what, like we, we, I, in the Catholic church, we have like small groups larger than your diocese. Like it's, it's insane really. Um, but yeah, so that happened. And a lot of, a lot of Anglicans were like, look, we're going to stay in, we're going to stay conservative. We're going to stay faithful, like recognize and resist, I guess is the best way of you guys thinking about it. So they had their funneled recognize and resist movement, um, which lasted until 2007. And finally in 2007, um, what sparked? I think there was like something gay that happened. I can't remember. It's either gay or women. I one one of the two happened within the Anglican Communion. The trans um, hadn't come yet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't trans yet, so it couldn't be gay and woman. I guess it could be gay and woman, um, even if it isn't trans. Um, but they decided to just like uh, just break off and start what's called GAFCON, so the Glo Global Anglican Futures Conference, which is actually quite large. And I, I think off the top of my head, it might be larger than the Anglican Communion now. Um, yeah, isn't it mostly like African too? Yeah, that that's what that's what leads to most of their population. Um, because most of the Gafcon groups in the Western countries are still pretty uh, small, and then Africa, they just have a lot of a uh, lot of the global South. Uh, they have a lot of uh, people, which is kind of funny because they elected like 
um, a white dude from Georgia to be the first leader of Gafcon. The... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Old. Bishop uh, Archbishop uh, Foley Beach. Um, yeah, I know it's weird. It's like elect elect the the head of like one of the smallest uh, groups within there uh, just because he's Western. Okay, I guess I guess that's how it works. Interesting. Um, so yeah, they broke all... off, and the American version of this, long story short, is the uh, ACNA, the Anglican Church of North America, and that's where I was a part of. Okay, and so all so basically, the craziness actually started in America regarding uh, Anglican ordinations and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't actually until the '90s that the Church of England uh, started ordaining women. Okay. Yeah. So okay. So you were part of the conser- sort of conservative anglicans and uh that's like not not even really because my my diocese and we we fought about this a lot um and i was obviously solidly against it as a as an arch conservative um but my diocese my bishop actually ordained women (laughs) like his yeah i think his daughter like was was going for orders or something like that yeah it was it was like yeah so like yeah this is your conservative anglican moment for you well, did you say you got kicked out of some seminary or of some sort because Yeah, uh... yeah, that, that that did happen. Um Yeah, I I I don't know how much detail to put on this because you know, they have pretty uh pretty deep pockets. So I, I've usually kept the details pretty uh okay. pretty under the radar because you know, I don't I don't want to get like some stupid uh stupid lawsuit or something. I don't know heck knows what I signed to get into that <laughs> Um yeah, I I, uh, I got accused of uh, heretical uh, theses, and one of uh, the the main one was actually baptismal regeneration, which is kind of ridiculous, uh, because an- the Anglican formularies affirm that baptism. Uh, basically, the Anglican formularies affirm baptismal regeneration. So I, as like an Anglican ordinand, am bound to hold to the Anglican formularies, uh, which are like kind of like the Anglican confession, which would be the Book of Common Prayer, the ordinal, uh, the thirty nine articles. Um, and then the, the book of homilies are sometimes added, but it's like, I had to hold that. And then they're just like, well, that's actually heretical. And I'm like, you're calling like the, because the Lutherans believe this too. So you're like, you're calling the biggest like branches of the reformation heretical right now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and then I was, and then they, then they booted me. So yeah, that, that was the whole, that was the whole story um, behind that. Yeah. And, but it's just interesting because I wouldn't even imagine Anglicans being called, calling each other heretical. Yeah, well, the um, the school I was going to it wasn't an Anglican seminary; it was a Reformed seminary. So, oh, okay, then that might make. But more Anglicans, sense. Anglicans calling each other heretical though is not uh, <laughs> it's not an innovation at all. <laughs> they do oh. it all the time. Okay, well, I just thought it seems like everything goes. Generally speaking, that's uh, at least that's my perception. Yeah, that's what it's. It is kind of. Um, it's kind of weird uh, how how to even like define Anglicanism, uh, and this is a this is a problem that you'll get uh, within Anglican circles where they fight each other to the death over. Because what what you have is from the very beginning of of Anglicanism, it's like you you don't really have a, a solid doctrine. You have you have a doctrinal body in the Thirty Nine Articles and the Book of Homilies and and all of these formularies. Yeah, so you have a doctrinal body. But it's like, in reality, ever since the beginning, there was this interpretive method, and this especially becomes clear with the um, in the late 17th uh, century and the 18th century, is you have this method of interpretation that's basically like, 
as long as you can kind of fit it into the words, it's okay. So it's like, for example, an, an example of this is if you read Track 90, which was written by St. John Henry Newman back when he was Anglican. And it's like, okay, well, the 39 Articles, it says we we reject the Romish doctrine of purgatory. And you'll say, well, it says we reject the Romish doctrine of purgatory. So okay. I can still hold the like apostolic <laughs> doctrine of purgatory. And it'd be like, it'd be like quibbling like this. Yeah. Um, and the bishops were just like, meh. I guess you're, I guess it's okay. You can, you can keep doing what you're doing. Um, but yeah, th this was just, uh, it, it, so it's, it's really hard to say like, okay, what is Anglicanism? Because personally, like if you, if you press me on it, I'll be like, yeah, I'm the, those guys aren't Anglicans uh, because the term Anglican itself was used for centuries before the reformation. This was just oh, yeah. means in, an English uh, Catholic or even like an Englishman of any sort. So it's like, yeah, I am an Anglican. You guys are not Anglicans. You guys are are, are really Henryists, if, if you want to put it like that, or however else you want to put it. I don't care what you guys call yourself, but you guys are not Anglicans. Are they even Henry? Um, are they even Henryists? No, not not really, because Henry uh, Henry his only thing was uh, he followed a man named Marcellus of Padua's uh, political theory. Uh, so really, Henry's only error was political. It was <laughs> it wasn't really uh, anything else. I mean, didn't he say that you need to only receive in like uh, uh, one kind uh, and that, mm -hmm. I mean, there were a bunch of different things that almost seem traditional. Uh, yeah, he, he basically held to everything of Catholic dogma, um, except he kind of didn't think the Pope had a certain authority that he did. So, yeah, his, his errors were political and ecclesiological, if anything, um, which is like really weird back then to even think about. Uh, ecclesiology. I, I like to I like to do my my excuses for Henry uh, because I think a lot of the common narratives are pretty bad surrounding Henry. But it's like uh, to even talk about like Catholic ecclesiology back in the early 16th century is like uh, is a bit crazy because most of our ecclesiology was developed in response to Protestantism. Um, but I mean, before that, yes, you do have like the uh, the Council of Constance um, making certain uh, condemnations of conciliarism. But it's like back then, like even recognize what was defined versus what was not was like really, really awkward. And this is why you get guys like Cajetan denying the um, denying the canon that was already defined at the Council of Florence. And it's like, how dude, you're a cardinal of the church. Um, <laughs> and like Florence, Florence wasn't that long ago. Florence was within 100 years of um of I mean, actually when was uh the council council of florence um it was in yeah the it ended in 1449 so it's like cajetan was born in what the 14 like 60s 1470s uh yeah so it's like it's within like that would be like for us like something that happened in the 1980s and you just like yeah 1469 so 20 years after finished so it's like something happened like in the 1980s and we're just like yeah we don't know that's defined like, what, what do you mean you don't know what's defined? Like, this was, like, there were people alive during the Council of Florence that you, like, knew growing up. Like, how, how do you not know this? This was, like, a generation before you. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, it's, it, gets, it gets super awkward, like, whether things were uh, defined and how were they defined. But it's very clear. The one thing that's very clear is he severely erred when it came to um, the authority of the Pope in ecclesiolo ecclesiological manners. Like, no, nobody uh, in their right mind could say that it was like, OK, within Catholic dogma back then to say that, like, a king would be the head of the church. Like that, that was just like it, like it's crazy. That was crazy uh, to say back then. Yeah. 
it, it's interesting uh the whole thing with henry but uh when you came into the church did you come into uh sort of the sort of Novus Ordo did, or type of parish, or did you come into the regular diocese or did you come in through the ordinariate? Yeah. So um, when I, when I first converted, uh, at least when I first de- decided to convert um, the next morning, because uh, this happened like in the after, it was like a moment. It's kind of weird as a moment. Um, but like the next morning I um, called uh, the diocesan, well, the ordinary headquarters in Houston. Um, and I talked to the vocations director for them. And I was like, hey, this is my situation. Like, am, when I join the Catholic Church, am I going to be a seminarian? That's what I was wondering about. Like, am I going to transfer, be a seminarian and like uh, become become a Catholic priest? That's what I was curious about. And he's like, no, we uh, canonically, we don't do that anymore. It's interesting because uh, the UK and Australia do it. So if I was in the UK or Australia, I would I would probably be a seminarian right now. Hmm. Um, but since uh, we're in America, Bishop uh, Lopes, and I think he's done this correctly. I absolutely think he's done this correctly. Um, but Bishop Lopes, he does not uh, accept seminarians um, as uh, as seminarians, only deacons as deacons and priests as priests. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's the first thing I did. Um after after that, I was uh, put in contact with um, a an ordinary parish uh, near uh, Charlotte, which is uh, near where I live now. I used to be in Florida, uh, working in uh, in the diocese, uh, the Anglican diocese down there. Um, but now I, I'm up near uh, up in North Carolina. So yeah, I got into contact with uh, one of he was he's. I think, did he already get ordained uh, or he's getting ordained this month? Um, but uh, he's Deacon uh, Joshua Johnson. He will be Father Joshua Johnson uh, here soon, or maybe he already has. I've, it's just been uh, crazy for me, so I haven't been uh, been paying attention. But uh, so I got into contact with him and he's like, look, this is uh, since you already were a seminarian and you've already clearly like read your way into the church and things like that. Uh, we're going to like go over the catechism very broadly and have a few meetings where we can just meet and discuss whatever you feel like discussing. Uh, but we're not like really going to do like an RCIA uh, sort of thing. So it was about, I want to say like six months after I decided to convert that I was received, which for most is relatively quick, but the, the ordinary is able to have some uh, flexibility uh, with discerning where people are, um, where a normal, uh, like Novus Ordo diocesan uh, sort of program isn't going to be able to do that. So yeah, um, that that's I was received into uh, the ordinariate uh, in Athens, Georgia. Uh, that's where the the nearest parish was because technically uh, the one near Charlotte just became a parish. Oh, okay. um, it re- back then it was just a community who who met for mass once a month. Um, so yeah, I was received into the Catholic Church uh, down in Athens, Georgia. Um, so yeah, that was that was fun. Uh, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm or, I'm ordinary. At, uh, I I pray the ordinary at office. I don't go to ordinary at mass because the the parish is like two hours away. So um, theoretically, I make it there once a month. But usually, uh, it's it's a lot uh, a lot less than that, um, just because of the the drive. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of uh, what what I do. So yeah, I, I, I very thoroughly um, 
ordinariate. I'm not just like, yeah, I was, I was kind of like received in the ordinariate or like, yeah, I was former Anglican. So I guess I kind of, uh, identify with it. Like now canonically I am ordinary. Gotcha. And, uh, are most of these people at the, at the, um, church you would go to when you, when you can make it up there, are they converts? Uh, every single one of them. Okay. Uh, that, that's actually, if, if anybody's watching and, and you like, um, you like, you, you want to, uh, financially support, um, work that goes to like, um, like basically helping converts or um, ministering to converts or somehow bringing people into the Catholic church. Like don't give your money to Catholic answers there. Trust me, they're already swelled with it. Don't, don't give money to uh, whoever uh, give, give money to your local ordinary parish. Uh, they, they really, you, you're, you're giving money to priests who are converts who have a lot of kids and they're, they're, uh, they're making ends meet in that way. A lot of these guys, I know very hard workers, are working around the clock uh, because they're both priests and fathers of, of, of children. So it's like the, these guys are just insane with the type of hours they put in um, and they're start they're they're serving a bunch of converts. And each of these people you meet, it'd be like, yeah, uh, I, I joined in. I don't, I don't know. I joined in 2019 and here are like the five other people that have also got to uh, join since I've joined. It's like, yeah, these, these these people uh, these people are definitely uh, very very apostolic, uh, both lay and clergy. Uh, it's it's really really um, a really really good uh, area of the church to support. Your local Novus Ordo parish they they have boomer money uh, keeping them up, but the <laughs> yeah it's like it's like kind of the wild wild west in the ordinary. You, you kind of eat what you kill uh, there. So definitely they they need the money. They're very appreciative of the of the money. So definitely if you. Um, if you have the means uh, or, or if you want to want to switch to that, definitely uh, if you want your money actually like making huge impacts, then uh, definitely consider um, an ordinary at parish. Awesome. Yeah. Can you take us through the sort of the creation of the ordinary? What was the mindset behind mm -hmm. that? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people misunderstand it <clears throat> and I've gotten into a lot of uh, fights online with people because <laughs> Basically, the the way in which a lot of people think about the ordinariate is like my um, and, I, and I think this is actually a, a very um, damaging reputation. And this is what causes people when I tell the story of my conversion. They're like, well, why didn't they just let you in as a seminarian? Like, Why didn't they do that? Like that was so that's like sort of mean of them to do. And I'm like, no, this is not the purpose of the, uh, the ordinariate. But the ordinariate is meant to uh, basically be a a pastoral uh, provision. So, so what's, what's like a pastoral uh, provision. It isn't something that's meant to like be my, my based in trad, like serum, right. English expression of Catholicism. That's not what it's meant to do. It's not meant to um, like kind of be like an Eastern Catholic sort of thing uh, where we keep alive the Anglican tradition. That, that's not its purpose. Really what an ordinary it is and what a pastoral uh, provision is is it is meant to condescend to the weakness of um, us Anglican converts. That's that's really what it's meant for. Is we uh, and I I particularly uh, have this actually, uh, which is why I I still pray the same office that I prayed as a seminarian that I was bound to pray. Um, so uh, I we have certain attachments to certain liturgical practices. 
So uh, the office and, and also the mass is we uh, we have a certain cadence to our liturgy, a certain um, way in which pastoral uh, relationships between priests and con congregants are like it, it would be a little bit odd for you to like, I don't know, go out for Sunday lunch with your priest after mass at a Novus Ordo parish. But that would be something completely normal for an Anglican to, to uh, expect. It's like, well, the priest is going to go out to lunch with somebody if he's invited. And it's like, but at a Novus Ordo, that'd be like a really weird request. Like, what are you talking about, bro? I got, I got mass to celebrate in like 45 minutes. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, there, there's like that, that's a very like different cultural thing. It is like, uh, when I, when I was, when I was a, when I was a seminarian, like you, you kind of, you kind of were expected to, um, do things like that with, uh, with the people who are, um, under your charge. It's very, it's a lot more of uh, an intimate uh, relationship between priest and congregation. Uh, so yeah, there's pastoral differences, there's liturgical differences, there's preaching differences as well. Like our homilies are, are just different uh, with the way which we preach. I guess some ways, it, although it gets dangerous here uh, to say like some, in some ways, like theological expressions are a bit different. The way in which we do theologies is a tad different. Although you have to be very careful uh, with making that statement. So due to all of these differences, and um, Pope Benedict uh, in uh, Anglicanorum Chedibus, if, if you want to read like really the uh, the document about the ordinations, Anglicanorum Chedibus, uh, but it, Benedict the Sixteenth says that our liturgical practices uh, are are they're a gift to the church. Uh, there's certain good expressions there. It it, uh, it nourishes. It has the ability to nourish the faithful. So um, in order to condescend to our weaknesses and the various attachments that we have, like for me personally, if I, uh, and, I've, and I've done it before, I've tried to make the switch and I've, I've spent months uh, doing the other, it's just like really difficult. If I wanted to like switch to the liturgy of the hours or, or even like the, um, the pre-Vatican II uh, Roman breviary, to make that switch would just be like very, very difficult for me uh, because I'm just like so used to it. Like, this was something that my my wife and I were were praying morning and evening prayer before we even were engaged. We were still dating. <laughs> we have two kids now, so it, it's it's been it's been like a while that I've been doing this every morning, every evening, uh, morning and evening prayer, um, uh, in a certain way, praying the same prayers that like are just etched into my memory now. And to make that switch, like some of these some of these guys have been Anglicans since they were kids, and they're like in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So it's like to make that switch would be uh, very damaging to their uh, spiritual health. So um, Rome has condescended and allowed us to keep some of these good aspects, uh, obviously cleansing it from the various errors that have accrued uh, within the Anglican, um, within the Henryist schism, if you want to put it like that. But yeah, the, these are these are pastoral provisions which are meant to keep the faith alive and the faithful. It's a it's. Um, I, I want to put this carefully, but it isn't um, meant to be like a Suiris um, church. It's really uh, the ordinariate in order for it to uh, achieve its end. The best would be to convert all of the Anglicans and then to eventually uh, find itself to have no more need. So to kind of wean people in the ordinariate back onto how things are usually done in the Roman Rite. So this is why like, um, Clerical celibacy is still the ordinary practice within the even the ordinariate. The seminarians in the ordinariate who become priests, they um, they all uh, are celibate. Uh, we we don't somehow um, 
like take the normal Anglican practice because this is this is meant to be like a um, a pastoral measure in order to help people uh, who were who were in the um, who were in the uh, Anglican Church. And actually, um, what's what's good with the with the ordinary as well is also it it's a sort of helpful um, it's a helpful way to bring in uh, some of the good aspects of and this is what benedict talks about is bring in some of the good aspects of the anglican tradition and especially of the uh, ritualist tradition i was talking about earlier because they've made a lot of these impacts bring them into uh larger english-speaking catholicism like it would be great um if, if you've ever heard um an ordinary at mass and heard the like the gloria and chelsea steo chanted in like uh the the way of uh of Murbeck. It, like you listen to that and you're just like, man, this just like, it's like rips your, rips your soul like straight into heaven when, when you hear this, but then you, you hear like your normal Novus Ordo rendition. It's just like, this is kind of like corny, uninspiring. And, uh, but yeah, it feeds the, it feeds the the faith of a lot of people. Uh, sure. But objectively speaking, it, it could be better. It could be better. Uh, so I, I, I feel like that that's also another aspect that the, um, that I've heard from uh, higher authorities within the ordinary, and then also from uh, Rome itself, when it comes to the 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 purpose behind the ordinary, it's it's yeah. So that, that I hope that dispels a lot of misunderstandings. Um, it, it's it's just not meant to be like a um, it, it it's it's not meant to be a uh, sort of permanent option to uh, bring in some like. Uh, like archaeologically reconstruct a bunch of stuff from serum bright Catholicism. It's not like to be not like how like Western Orthodoxy is because that's what Western Orthodoxy is. Western Orthodoxy and Anglican Ordinariate, they are very, very, very different things. Western Orthodoxy, it's meant to archaeologically reconstruct what came before the Reformation. Um, Anglican Ordinariate is meant to um, cleanse what's present in the Anglican church uh, in order to keep alive and to help uh, the faith of Anglican converts grow. It's not yeah. meant to like replace <laughs> the, the Novus Ordo in England or anything like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there have been sort of uh, times when there's been a push for the return of the Sarum, right? So is that, that is not part of sort of the end goal of the ordinariate. No, no, the the ordinariate is purely pastoral, and and I I feel like when I when I get into discussions, um, and I, I guess I guess I I never asked about uh what, what your personal opinions were about this, so I might be trolling you right now. Uh, I don't know it, but um, yeah, when when I get into discussions with a lot of people who are just like, yeah, we we really love the 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 serum, so cool. The serum does this. The serum does that. And like, yeah, I I think the serum's cool. And I I honestly I really like uh I would really like like an occasional. Um, dispensation for the serum to be practiced for uh, for cultural uh, purposes. I, I think that's a really good uh, thing. I think that would be really cool to to bring it back into like occasional use. But really, the the purpose behind the ordinariate is meant for the faithful. It's meant to um, feed the faithful with familiar bread uh, that has been um, cleansed of its errors uh, by Rome by the watchful eye of uh, Holy Mother Church. So if you're if you're going to like have all of these like Anglican grandmas who uh, are now like interested in, in Catholicism and they they're they're priest who have been their priest their entire life. This is actually like in the in the English um, 
the Our Lady of Walsingham. Which actually have an Our Lady of Walsingham statue back there. Um, but Our Lady of Walsingham is usually a lot more familiar with this, is you get entire parishes moving over. Because it would be very traumatic for a lot of these people who have grown up in this parish. Their grand, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, for the last like 300 years have been going to this single like small-town English parish. And then you're telling these people, in order to convert, you have to, like, I know, like, your great-grandma's buried, like, on this plot at this parish, but just, like, give it up and just go to, like, the Nova Sordo down the street. Like, that that would be, like, a very, um tra- like, spiritually traumatic thing for a lot of these people to go through. So it's like, no, what we're going to do is your, uh, your priest, you're going to have the same priest. He's going to be a Catholic priest now. You're going to have the, the sort of uh, a similar liturgy. You're going to have this, even uh, if you're very lucky, the same building. Uh, you're you're going to have a lot of the familiar things. So just go and just be like, yeah, okay, let's uh, let's change this over to the serum, right? Like we know you've never heard that. You don't even know what serum is. You've never heard that in your entire <laughs> life. We're just going to celebrate this random Latin mass um, in in this parish. Uh, and that's going to that's what's going to really help you uh, be the based in trad uh, English Catholics. It's like, no, that that's just not the purpose. Like, there's a place for that. But it's just not the ordinary. That's not that's not what the ordinary does. That's not what the ordinary ever should do. I would be very disappointed if the ordinary ever started doing things like that. Yeah, I don't have any real strong opinions, uh, except for I see value in the Anglican ordinariate. It is unfortunate there are no Anglican ordinariates in my area. I've Sad. never I've never been able to uh, witness the liturgy. Um, it seems to me that the it's mostly on the borders of the United States is in the United States where the, the ordinary really exists, you know, in the East coast, you know, Florida, Texas, California, mm-hmm. and up that, you know, sort of, to me, it seems like the Midwest is kind of, uh, um, left absent for the most part. Yeah. Um, with, with that, uh, if anybody ever wants to like, just if they're curious after this interview and they just want to listen to like an ordinary at mass, the best one is if you go up and look uh, Anglicanorum Shady Blue Society um, and then Anglicanorum, it should pop up, but it's Anglican and then O-R-U-M and then Shady Boost is C-O-E-T-I-B-U-S. If you look at the Anglicanorum Shady Boost Society, they have matins and evensong in the Anglican tradition, which is like our morning and evening prayer. It's just called matins and evensong. And then uh, solemn mass and thanksgiving for Anglican or Shady Boost. Uh, those, those are all just like fantastic, fantastic uh, masses to watch. And it just shows forth the best of the, uh, of the ordinariate tradition. Yeah. Do you think that also part of this was benedict the 16th wanting a revival of the liturgy him introducing the anglican ordinariate into the church yeah i uh if you read anglican or the document i uh, i think it's very clear that benedict the 16th saw thought that the ordinariate um could eventually uh provide certain uh correctives or uh supplements to the uh to the novus ordo um to help them with because like if 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 you just like admit it like anglicans like even even when you go to like the um anglican mass uh in like the 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 gayest sort of possible um parish you can think of in the episcopal church like their chorus sounds great 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you, you, you go like to one of the Church of England parishes where they have like some lesbian priest in Tridentine vestments. Like they're the even even while like they have no faith, like they they still they still have like a very um, a very good liturgy, which which should probably say something about um what what the difference between a pretty liturgy and then a, a good liturgy. It's it's a pretty liturgy um to be to be clear. So uh, Anglicans, they're they're actually like even like small, like 30 people Anglican uh, ordinary at masses that I've been to. They're just fantastic. They uh, they even at, they'll have like 25 people and they'll still manage to like get enough people to do polyphony. Like, come on, man. That, that's 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 insane. Um, then you'll have like this parish of like, I don't know. 5,000 families, uh, this Novus Ordo parish with 5,000 families, and they can't find one cantor to like <laughs> cant properly. Um, the the propers, um, so yeah, to, to be honest, like when you look at the ordinariate, they're able to um retain the reforms of Vatican II. Because if you're being perfectly honest with yourself, when you look at the reforms in the Anglican liturgy that happened in the 70s, a lot of it was influenced by the reforms of the Roman Rite uh, that happened uh, in the Novus Ordo. So accepting um, the the good out of the reforms that happened from Vatican II, uh, that, that's, uh, that's something very important. Uh, providing a um, the, the sort of traditional English beauty of form, because the because to be to be honest, like the 16th, 17th century translators of English are a heck of a lot better than the modern day translators of English. Not not necessarily in content, but they just knew the English language better. So they're able to um, provide uh, a certain um, elevation of language, a certain clearness of expression that modern day translators, uh, they're just not able to do. And that, that's why, like, they sound sort of like a lot of modern day translations of hymns just sound sort of dorky. Or if you read like um, John Mason Neal, for example, he was a 19th century um, Anglo-Catholic. Like his translations of hymns, they're they're classics. Everybody knows them. Like it's uh, they're they're very good, and nobody could like replace them with a new translation because everybody would just uh, think that the other one just sounded terrible. Because that's just uh, that's just how good they were with translation. So I I think this could be very very helpful um, with uh, the the Novus Ordo. Um, uh, applying the reforms of, of Vatican II um, without a lot of the uh, cringe, uh, w w while rejecting a lot of the way the cringe ways in which they have been um, applied. So I, I, we definitely do need to distinguish between the um, what Vatican II intended and then what happened, uh, because those are two very very different things. Yeah, and also it's interesting you bring up language and the use of language and how you know sort of how it was translated uh evelyn waugh when he was during the middle of vatican ii happening and before the novus ordo he basically said there are two ways that they're going to go about making an english speaking mass it's either going to be sort of our uh, archaic language like beautiful and poetic sort of archaic language or sort of the um i guess the boring uh sort of uh, dull contemporary English that's like yeah. very um is that that's the thing is um we look at the way in which English uh, is sort of used now is like where where do we where do we sort of ourselves find uh the way in which we speak English the way in which we uh which is opposed to like the 19th century uh 
educational system, which if you read any sort of grammar book of English grammar in the 19th century, it's very clear. There were like, there are certain authorities of the English language that teach how to speak proper English. These would be like Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer, the KJV, Shakespeare, uh, Milton, like all authors like this who are from the traditional period of the English language in its formative period. These are authorities on how you speak English well, how you write English well. Um, and this was something which they focused on. They're like, okay, we want to speak proper English. We want to write proper English. This is how it has to be done. Um, and, and this is actually, uh, I think, was was something very important for me and something that I definitely would like to give my kids is that a lot of times uh, the way in which I interacted with the Bible growing up was the King James Version, uh, which I think might have influenced a little bit of my choice towards Anglicanism. But uh, what, what you look at nowadays is like, OK, how how what do we view as an authority for English? Really, it's um, either entertainment or commercial. Uh, and of course, back then it was entertainment as well. Like Shakespeare was entertainment, but it was entertainment that was was not only in matter, but also in the form of uh, of of the way in which words were spoken. So uh, now, like we have a very economical uh, sort of way of speaking uh, that's very, uh, I think, very gross. Um, it, it's it's very it, it's like it's almost it's almost like you're you're like prostituting language i guess would be the best way of putting it you're like you're 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 abusing uh language and, and you're just kind of like using language um you're, you're you're not like you're not you don't have any regard uh for language qua language um so like it end it ends up just being like very it just kind of wants to get an idea across but doesn't know how to um He's like when you when you listen to like a very good speaker, I guess this is the best way I can give an analogy for for people who might have trouble understanding what I'm saying. When you listen to a very good speaker. And I, I, I just stand up here and I'm just like, OK, well, uh, after you die, um, uh, God is going to judge you. And then um, on the other hand, I could say um, like upon upon your death the the faith the face of god's wrath will come before you and will consume you with the fire of 10,000 suns and you will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented by demons like well, I, I said basically the same thing but the way in which i said it uh, even, even like the tone of my voice the type of language that I used, like uh, the using metaphor and, and using um, very vivid imagery, it changes um, it changes the way in which it's perceived. You're better able to understand the the sort of uh, what I'm trying to say just by the, the way in which I say it. And that's why uh, the way in which we translate liturgy is so important. It's really the liturgical translators are as important. People don't recognize this, but the liturgical translators are as important as those who are writing the liturgical um, documents. They're just as important because you can absolutely um, remove one of the emphases of the liturgy if you just translate it in a certain way. Like you, you can translate the uh, passages about uh, hell, for example, or judgment in a very benign way, and then people aren't really going to be impacted by it. But if you, if you write it in a way which is uh, very stern, very strong, um, is able to 
raise the mind by the very form of words to what it means, uh, what it is attempting for you to contemplate, then yeah, you're, you're going to be able to uh, understand what it's saying a lot better. Yeah, it's, it makes a lot of sense there. You know, you can basically have somebody who is going to tell you the exact same thing, but in the most dull and uh, inoffensive manner. And you're not really going to, it's not really going to go into your soul. It's not really going to um, consume you fully. But, uh, and then that creates a very lackluster liturgy. And um, that, that can be very dangerous. And that's not seen in uh, the Anglican Ordinariate from what, from mm. what I can understand. Yeah, they uh, because it's not really like an even even like a strictly ordinary thing. It's just because of the um, just because of the way in which like it, it could be it could be anybody really like even like even read like Methodist sermons or you read like uh, Baptist sermons from the 19th century or the type of translations they did in the 19th century. It's just like people were taught English in a different way that just made it makes it better for these things. It doesn't even have to like a lot of people are like, oh, you, you just want to bring back like uh, the these, the thou's, the thighs, the, the, the cometh and goeth and, and, and such, but not even really like those traditional markers of English. Uh, you, you can you can remove those and still have like a very powerful, um, very powerful uh, English uh, language translation. Uh, you you don't really need to have like the the markers of, of of tradition. Gotcha. Now we talked a little bit about what what would be the difference or what you might see at an ordinary parish versus Novus Ordo or TLM. But uh, are there any any other things that like sort of would be dramatically different or something maybe we should take interest in on uh, what we can uh learn from an ordinary parish um yeah besides i i think it's a vastly superior sort of pastoral uh relationship um because of the way in which um like most nova sort of parishes are seen are like sacraments uh sort of stores that you kind of are able to just like do do the do the whole thing and, and go there and pick up your sacraments and then leave um, I like to, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I mean, a Anglicans can have the opposite problem, which is basically making the church a glorified social club, but Hey, <laughs> at, le at least, uh, at least you, you like social clubs a little bit better than merely like your, your sacrament store, um, a vendor it, you're getting, yeah, you're getting, you're getting a little bit like, it's a, like a sacrament dispensary sort of thing is you, you go and you pick up your sacraments and you, you're able to go and then, uh, come back for your pill next week or whatever. Um, that so when it comes to the uh, pastoral approach of um, of actually knowing uh, closely those your priest and those people who you're sitting next to, I think that's good. Um, I won't even I I, I won't uh, <laughs> I won't even comment on the whole uh, celibacy versus non celibacy debate. I think it um, I think that is uh, the the at least the ordinary in America has in Bishop Lopes has been very clear that celibacy is still our practice. Uh, the only reason why non-celibacy is is allowed among certain priests is for pastoral reasons. Uh, so that's already been decided, um, and I'm not going to disagree with my bishop on that. 
Um, and, I, and I think that's just from the logic of um, of the teaching of the church for especially the last 500 years. Um, so also, yeah, the, the liturgy uh, stuff is is vastly important. Um, but other uh, I, I guess also we can we can talk about like the, the sort of apostolic spirit um, of the the ordinary at the ordinary at. Like I said in the beginning, uh, I think I said it a while ago, but like every single person you talk to the ordinary, it's like, yeah, I have like these three other like groups of people at this one parish that I also brought to the ordinary. And they have each one of those have these two other people that they brought to the ordinary. It's just like they're very, very good with their apostolic spirit. Um, but the biggest the biggest point in one that I don't think I've emphasized enough is the way in which the ordinariate brings in the Anglican relationship to the divine office is you actually get, and I, I mean, I've stayed with these, stayed with these people at their, at their houses uh, for, for periods of time, but like it's average for an ordinary household for them to pray morning and evening prayer together. Hmm. Uh, that That's like a, that's like a normal thing. Uh, and e even like some of them will just like, uh, do do the whole like not just like read it but they'll do the whole uh like chanting and and um also also the like liturgical measures and and such like that but the bringing back of the practice of the divine office um both uh parochially so in in uh, your parish uh and then also in families uh very 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 important i i can't i can't stress enough how important and how impactful it would be for families to just start praying the, the divine office together. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it doesn't even take that long. People, people are kind of babies about it sometimes, but like um, <laughs> you can go to, uh, if anybody's interested um, in like looking at how it goes, uh, prayer.covert. So C O V R T.org um, prayer.covert.org um, that has the, from the American, uh, from the North American divine office it has the uh the um how do i put it like the office lined up for you out there um and then it has like you you start out with a sentence of scripture then you go to um like a confession of sin and then you go to like various psalms and scripture readings actually you become very uh familiar with scripture after this and if you ever get a physical copy, which my physical copy is in the living room, so I don't have it on me right now. Um, if you ever get a physical copy, you can read in the beginning where it shows you how, if you are short on time, you can actually like edit it to make it a bit uh, shorter. So really, if you if you're like editing it to make it shorter, it should only take you in the morning and evenings like 15, 15 20 minutes to pray morning and evening prayer together. It doesn't take that long. Um and you're reading through the Psalms very frequently. You're reading through most of the Bible, um, doing that. Actually, not most of the Bible, but basically the entire New Testament and then uh, a good chunk of the important passages in the Old Testament. But it's like, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think that would be uh, one of the good practices uh, of the ordinary that should be uh, brought into the wider uh, Roman rite as practice of the office. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um I didn't. I've never thought about it as uh, families doing it, but that's really interesting. Uh, together, I don't know. Is that? Uh, did that? Oh, like where does that go back to? How long ago was it where families were doing the the divine office? Or um... uh, that that was since the time of um, <clears throat> since the time of Cranmer. 
uh, really, because you have uh, and there's there's an interesting um, I can't remember his name, uh, but there's an interesting lecture on like the history behind the divine office in the uh, in the Book of Common Prayer. And you get in <clears throat> sort of Renaissance culture. Uh, it became kind of popular for people to uh, outside of monasteries. Uh, say the divine office because they were literate they could so they would get breviaries and they would uh, say the divine office and, and usually what would happen is because these people weren't monks they had other things to do they started forming these uh, breviaries that were shortened for for these people and unfortunately secular priests it never hit monasteries but secular priests which just means priests who aren't in uh who aren't in monasteries, but they're in parochial settings. They were like, well, we kind of want shorter offices too. So <laughs> they, they, they started using um, these shortened versions of offices that were meant for laymen. Um, and then eventually uh, from these actually uh, arose the, um, the office that was added into the book of common prayer, which is very simplified. No, really no propers, um, only readings, um, a a selection of the Psalms that's basically just read through the Psalter rather than having anything special about the days or seasons. The only thing that really changes is the collect, which is the prayer at the end. A very, very short, very simple. Uh, you can teach like a seven-year-old to to pray the office, which has its advantages uh, for sure. But the issue is the the priests. <laughs> the, the, the priests were just like, okay, this is our only obligation is basically... Uh, praying for that certain amount of time um and then they wouldn't be celebrating daily mass or anything so mm. it, yeah it's like with with the roman priests you'd have like hours and hours of vocal prayer a day um because they'd uh, usually be praying uh their divine office something like the rosary and then all, also they'd be having their daily mass uh, they'd have to say so hours of vocal prayer a day but anglican clergy it was like I don't know. You have your 30 minutes of uh, vocal prayer a day, uh, if you're lucky. Um, see, that was quite damaging, uh, but it was very good for, for laymen uh, because you would have educated laymen would be able to pray with their families uh, in, in as morning and evening prayer. Or even co certain communities would be able to come together and uh, pray morning and evening prayer uh, together. So it, it was it wasn't a, exactly the the worst thing that, that could have been invented. I think it was actually a very good invention. And I, I think we actually have a similar thing that happened with the uh, Novus Ordo. I mean, with the uh, Liturgy of the Hours, unfortunately, is they decided to like dumb it down for use of laity, which was mm -hmm. a good thing. But like um, when it came to uh, your your priests, unfortunately, um, they were they were sh uh, they kind of were shortchanged on their duty, which caused a lot of them to just like not do it at all. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, are there any like uh, drive for certain saints to come out of um, the ordinariate? Are there any like, well, obviously non-canonized saints that mm. the ordinariate is pushing for, or so at least the um, the laymen are pushing for? Yeah, that's an interesting question, um, and I think this is what distinguishes us from Eastern Catholicism is Eastern Catholicism, they have a very hard time of recognizing their schism uh, um, and being humble and penitent about their schism. Um, but when it comes to the ordinariate, there isn't as much uh, this difficulty, at least in the American ordinariate. Uh, I know in the um, 
in the UK, uh, a lot of them have more liberal views of the the schism. Um, but yeah, we're we're not. Uh, I, I know there's some people who are uh, a member of Saint Charles King and Martyr, and there's some sort of devotion to Saint Charles King and Martyr, which uh, he was killed by Presbyterians. I know there's some sort of devotion there, but like I've I've never really seen any sort of serious push to canonize uh, post schism. Um, Anglican clergy or laymen. Gotcha. What about non? What about uh, English or uh, sort of uh, Anglicans that like? Yeah, yeah, like pre-schism uh, Anglicans, uh, or just even or like return people who returned. Any, any. Um... Yeah, it's it's been um, so the pastoral provision, which was first from Anglican Orm Chadivus, was in the seventies. So I guess we could have um, people who who died. Uh, long enough to go to do that, but I can't think of any in particular that um, that this has happened with. Is there any uh, sort of major uh, differences in the calendar or uh, interesting things about the calendar that? Um... Yeah, there there is there is actually because we have a um, a calendar which focuses uh, more strongly on the the saints of the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. So we we there's a lot of um, blesseds uh, that are included in our calendar and even some saints that are included in our calendar that aren't celebrated uh, in the Novus Ordo. And then also our um, our ordinary time is still reta uh, retained as Sundays after Trinity. Uh, so Trinity Tide is still retained in the uh, ordinary. I can't think of any other like major sort of differences um, besides that. So it's Trinity Tide, not uh, after Pentecost. Yeah. So um, this is this is interesting uh, because there there's actually like sort of a, a battle within Anglicanism, and also like the Romanizing Anglicans versus like the the true true Anglicans. <laughs> is traditionally traditionally we talk about um, Trinity Tide. We don't talk about Whitsuntide because technically it's not Pentecost in the in the Anglican ordinary. It's uh, Whit Sunday. Uh, oh okay yeah uh which is i, I just call it pentecost uh but, but yeah uh it's whit sunday in the uh traditional Lent mass it's still referred to as whit sunday really that that might be a uh that's interesting because i i know in english-speaking countries because, because if you think about it i mean uh like 50 60 years ago uh kids would get off for whit sunday so in english-speaking catholic circles I'm, I'm sure they just refer to it as whit sunday this is a pre-reformation uh sort of uh, practice called Whit Sunday, um, but yeah, it, this leads to the interesting uh, for uh, the interesting term Whit Suntide um, because we talk about like Trinity Tide and we talk about a Passion Tide, but we have a Whit Suntide, uh, which is a very fun word to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, there, there's a sort of battle because technically, like in the Roman Rite, they usually talk about it as um, uh, Pentecost Sundays after Pentecost, but in uh, traditional anglican fashion they would talk about sundays after trinity not sundays after pentecost so uh if if, I'm, if memory is serving me correct which i'm sure it is um it's it we we still just retain the um we we retain our traditional practice which is sundays after trinity hmm, interesting okay yeah that's it's kind of cool uh and uh an interesting battle in uh in anglican circles uh between the uh, the two sides and is that kind of uh something that kind of persists sort of this sort of a romanizing uh factions versus 
uh, Anglicanizing factions in some sense or holding. Um, to I'd have to. Yeah, I, I guess I guess there's because you have the whole thing. Um, yeah, I just checked, so it, I was right. It is uh, Sundays after Trinity. Um, so I, I would like there's this whole thing with like Eastern Catholicism where they're just like terrified to death of like oh Latinization. Um, they're, they're they're just like they they shake over it and they they just they're terrified of uh, of Latinization. Like oh our, our tradition, if we don't like. You know, do this like very obscure thing that the layman don't even notice. We're like actually Latinized. And it's terrible, um, which I, I personally think some Latinization is good, uh, even within the uh, within the ordinariate, um, because there's some local apostolic practices that just uh, ought not to be done uh, because they're either from later corruptions or uh, they just just uh, we, we can like, for example, we got rid of the apostolic practice of um of the Cordesimen, uh celebration of Easter. Like it's okay to get rid of these things uh, because they can cause uh, trouble. Um, but yeah, uh, when, it, when it comes to like Latinization, like is, is there like an Anglican complaint towards Latinization? Uh, I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I've never really encountered it much. And the reason I think so is because in the late uh, 19th century with the ritualist movement, they really provided a good synthesis. And throughout the early 20th century, they provided that good synthesis. And then you have just like the, um, uh, they, they anoint like these, these guys that are, they care, the guys that are just like really like into liturgy. Uh, it, those guys are usually like the most annoying to me as like an ordinary member, because they'll just be like, oh, you, you didn't like, take this reform from like John Mason Neal that like three people in the world know about how are we ever going to be able to worship God? Like, how are we going to be able to do it? Like is, is our masses even valid anymore? And it's just, they, they, they complain. They're like, Oh, the, the North American, uh, the North American prayer book is just so terrible. And no, oh, this is just so terrible. Nah, no, that's just so terrible. They're just annoying. Uh, to, to be honest, like you, you get the guys that are kind of uh, a bit gay about it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's whatever. Uh, I, I usually just make fun of them, um, and nobody pays attention to them, um, because yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you have to recognize it's a pastoral, the ordinary, it's a pastoral provision. None, none of these laymen give one crap about whatever was written about in the liturgical reform a hundred years ago. We kind of just care about what, uh, what errors that we have in the Anglican liturgy that was being used before we converted. And then we care about fixing those errors. That's really all we care about. So there's no like complaints of Latinization or, or complaints of this or that, uh, when it comes to that. Okay. Awesome. So yeah. we used to, we, grandma said Sunday after Trinity. So we say Sunday after Trinity, uh, <laughs> really, really, we don't, we don't care. We don't care about, uh, whatever, whatever happened, uh, the, the history behind why we say Trinity Tide and other people say Whitsun Tide. We, we don't care about that. It's whatever whatever grandma said and whatever we grew up saying, uh, because it's a pastoral for pastoral provisions. Who cares about uh, all of these like autistic details? Like it's like just just get a get a life like the sort of uh, just get a life, man. Stop focusing on, on these things. They, they don't matter, really. And nobody cares about them. Literally, you and like your three friends are the only people that care about. Them. <laughs> uh, okay. It's uh, it's ridiculous. Okay. Well, on that note, um, so is there anything that you want to um, 
promote or uh, anything upcoming at your on your channel uh, that uh, people should look forward to? Yeah, I uh, I'm right in the middle of a series uh, on the life of Saint Thomas, and then I'm also uh, going to be doing a series soon on the filioque from uh, Dennis Patavius, who was a who was a Jesuit in the 17th century. Um, but yeah, I just do scholastic stuff. If you're interested in like uh, like serious stuff, I do that. Uh, if you're interested in like basic catechetical stuff, I'm going through um, St. Thomas's uh, like catechetical works, uh, his, his works on the Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer. They're very simple, easy for laymen. Uh, I think they provide a very good uh, an easy like intro into his works. Um, rather than just diving into something like, oh, let's dive into his commentary on the sentences. Like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, so yeah, I do that. And then if, if you like the sort of like live stream, live Q and a type thing, uh, Hassan and I, uh, if any of you know who Hassan is, he's a, he's a friend of mine. Uh, every Saturday morning, we do a Saturday morning stream where you can just do Q and a stuff. If that's what it's, that's what you like watching. So yeah, I, I do a few different types of things that should be uh, appealing to a wider range of people. Awesome. That's great. I'll have uh, links to hopefully everything that uh, mentioned in the video. So it's easy to find. Um, so thank you all for watching Christian. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure talking to you um, for everyone, anyone interested uh, or anyone who wants to sort of follow more of my content, please like share, comment and subscribe, help us beat the algorithm and, uh, God bless everyone.